So, chazak, chazak, v'nitzachek. These are the words we say every time we come to the end of uh, reading one of the books of the Torah. I actually get a little sad every time we finish a book. Like, I, I know we're going to come back to it again soon, but um, you know, I, I love the book of Genesis so much. And I'm always sad to see it go for another year. So, before we move on to the book of Exodus... I want to take kind of like a pit stop at the final great epic saga of Genesis. So if Abraham's story was the first, and Jacob's story was the second, the story of Joseph is the third great saga of Genesis, and it really takes up almost like the second half of the entire book. It has all the ingredients of a great story. There's betrayal, and suffering, and redemption, and reconciliation. You know, this is a painful story and a tragic story. And I think it's a very surprising story in a lot of ways. So, you know, there are so many fascinating parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Yeshua. You know, if you're all familiar with the story, you know that Joseph is rejected by his brothers. And he spends a long time blessing the Egyptian people before he's reconciled to his own family. You know, and I've heard this model many times before. Yeshua is Joseph. The Jewish people are the brothers. Uh, the Egyptians are the nations of the world. But, you know, this model always seemed incomplete to me. Because, of, you know, what about me? Where do I fit in? You know, Messianic Jews don't really have a place in this model. We're not the brothers, but we're not the Egyptians either. It's kind of puzzling. So, but I think if we take a different approach at reading the story of Joseph, we'll find that the Jewish believers in Messiah do have a place in this model. So what I'd like to do today is take a bit of a closer look at the story that we're so familiar with and just try try to ask some questions that maybe didn't occur to us the first time around. So I think that when you ask these kind of big questions, it could be a window to unlock deeper meaning, deeper layers of meaning from the text. So all my questions kind of revolve around the same theme, the theme of what were they thinking? You know, if I have a criticism of the book of Genesis, it's that it can be very, very sparing on details, especially when it comes to the internal lives of the characters, you know, in the most harrowing, intense, the most tension-fraught moments of their lives, we get no information about the, about the emotional states of our forefathers. So I think about, okay, when God tells Noah, I'm going to end the world, everything is going to die, and I'm going to, you're going to build a giant boat with a bunch of animals, we have no idea how Noah feels about this at all. I mean, for all we know, he could have been like, well, good, about time. I don't know anything about boats. So for all we know, you know, so when Abraham takes Isaac to sacrifice him on the mountain, you know, this is this horrible situation. We don't know anything about what they're thinking at the time. And I think the same thing can be said about the story of Joseph as well. So I want to try and delve into this text and see if we can find any clues to kind of fill in the blanks of what these people were thinking and feeling and why they did what they did. So I'm just going to give you like a a quick thumbnail sketch of the story as it starts. You know, it starts out very nice. You know, once upon a time, there were 12 brothers, uh, but these brothers come from several different mothers. Uh, the story focuses on the children of two different mothers, Rachel and Leah. So Jacob had initially fallen in love with Rachel and only wanted to marry her, but due to circumstances, uh, he wound up also married to Leah, and he didn't love as much as Rachel. But he winds up having more children with Leah than he does with Rachel, in fact, he has six children with her before Rachel even gets pregnant. But when Rachel does give birth to Joseph, Jacob starts to favor him above the children of Leah. Jacob gives Joseph this, uh, this special coat as a sign of his favor position, and the brothers start getting really jealous. 
And then Joseph starts having these dreams of grandeur, uh, where his family is bowing to him. And Joseph is rising in power. And the brothers hate him even more after this. And, and Jacob's upset with Joseph, and there's this tension in the family between Joseph and his brothers. And finally, Jacob sends Joseph on this mission to check on his brothers, and it all comes to a head. The brothers kidnap Joseph, they strip him of a special coat, sell him into slavery, and Joseph's life has changed forever. That's a, that's a, that's a brief summary of the story. And it seems to me that like, some questions pop out at me when I'm reading this. And then those questions are like, you know, what were they thinking? You know, so let, let's, let's start with the brothers. You know, how are we supposed to understand their actions? You know, it's one thing to be jealous of someone or to hate someone. But what they did, you know, stripping of his clothing and throwing him in a pit, you know, it seems, seems kind of excessive. You know, it's not, not, not a very nice thing to do. So how did they justify their actions to themselves? You know, was this an act of blind jealousy? Or did they have some rationale for it? Uh, number two, what is Jacob thinking? You, you know, why did Jacob, after all these tensions in his family, choose to send Joseph on that day, immediately after becoming aware of how jealous his brothers were? You know, it's a dangerous mission. He's alone. He's unguarded. He's far from home. There's open hostility between the brothers. You know, you know maybe hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know, it seems to me Jacob was acting really naive to not realize how dangerous the situation he was sending Joseph into. Was Jacob just really oblivious to what was going on? Was he not paying attention to the conflict in his family? And if he did, you know, would these terrible things have been avoided? And finally, you know, what, what does God think of all this? Throughout all this family drama, God doesn't react in any overt way. We, we don't get any, like, you know, convenient lightning bolts coming down that would have, you know, let him know how he feels about this. You know, in the, in the Bible, God doesn't always react, but you know, people do their own thing, and we find out more in more subtle ways what God's approach is. So are there any clues in this text about how God feels about this? What does God think of the brother's rationale, if there is one? You know, what does he think about what Jacob's doing? And does God care at all? I mean, maybe there was like a star-going supernova somewhere in the galaxy. He was too busy to pay attention. But so I want to frame this all in the context of what were they thinking? You know, it's very difficult to go back 3,000 years and piece together theories, but, you know, I think we do get some clues in the text uh, that gives us a greater understanding of what was really going on. And I think we can learn some great lessons from this. So let's, let's start off with Jacob then. Was he really this naive guy who didn't know what was going on in his family, or was there a rationale for his actions? So I want to go through the text carefully. I think the best way to get an understanding of what, you know, these people were thinking is to read with an eye towards their perspectives. So with that in mind, here's how chapter 37 begins. If you want to follow along in your own Bibles, this is all from chapter 37 of Genesis. Let's see. There we go. These are the generations of Jacob. That's how, this, that's how the story starts. Okay, so right off the bat, we see something really strange. Okay, if you didn't know what this next sentence was going to be, what would you expect to read next? Okay, these are the generations of Jacob. I would think that we read about the generations of Jacob. He has 12 sons, maybe in order of their birth. But if you read on, it just immediately starts talking about Joseph. I mean, the brothers get mentioned, but you know, they're, they're, they're tangential to Joseph. The spotlight is on Joseph. Now, the rationale could be this is Joseph's the main character. But the more subtle rationale, the one we see if we read this from Jacob's perspective, is that in his eyes, Joseph is his only descendant. It was all about him, and the other brothers don't count. In a minute, we'll read more about this favoritism, but even before that, we get this jarring moment. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph. 
Because if he were the only one, you know, Joseph has this primacy in his father's eyes, not just as the favor among equals, but as the only one who his father counts as his true son. So, next, well, that's a really small text. All right, you have to follow in your own Bibles for that. So next, the text starts charting these building tensions in this cause and effect kind of way. We see an action happen, and then the brothers react to that action. So the first over-indication of favoritism is in verse 3. Israel loves Joseph more than his other sons, and he gives him a, a special coat. And this directly leads in the next verse to the brothers hating Joseph. No, there's, there's this inverse relationship between love and hate. The more Jacob loves Joseph, the more his brothers hate him. So we start seeing here, this is the fruits of favoritism. And these, this has plagued Jacob through his entire life. Jacob's father played favorites with him and Esau. He created conflict between those two brothers. Jacob plays favorites between his two wives, and there's tension in his marriage. Now Jacob's once again playing favorites, and now Joseph's going to be the one to suffer for it. And pay attention to the way the text presents this hatred. The brothers didn't hate Joseph because Jacob loved him more. You know, children can come to grips that sometimes parents have a soft spot in their hearts for one of their kids. You, know, you can get over it. It's the fact that Jacob expressed his favoritism through his actions that caused him to hate his brother, hate their brother. You know, when his brother saw that their father loved him more, they hated him. Well, favoritism is expressed externally. When you're not being treated fairly, that's when hatred can take root. So, next thing that happens in verse 5 is, you know, these dreams come. So, Joseph has two sets of dreams. Uh, once again, we see these same themes are playing out. Problem wasn't Joseph had a dream. You know, everybody's got dreams. I had some weird ones last night. I'm not going to go into it. But the brothers hate him because he felt the need to tell them his dream. It's just like with Jacob. It's not what's in his heart that they hate. It's with the outward expression that causes it. And this gets confirmed in verse 8. You know, they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of his words. So the brothers already hate Joseph uh, because he gets preferential treatment, uh, because he tells them his dreams. So tension is building. It's just going to get even worse. So Joseph has a second dream where the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to him. And the dream seems very self-evident. The sun and the moon are his father and his mother. The stars are his brothers. This time, Joseph tells the dream not just to his brothers, but also to his father. So now this is a three-way conversation, uh, and that's going to be very important. So right away, we see that Jacob becomes angry about this dream. He says, you know, shall I, your mother and your brothers, bow down to you? Uh, Now here's something interesting. We talked about how there are two mothers in this story. So Rachel and Leah, so the problem here is Joseph's mother is already dead. So if Joseph's dream is really true, then what is his mother doing in this dream? So Rashi, you know, the great biblical commentary, you know, he, you know, he speculates that this is what causes Jacob to get upset. And I think that's very interesting. Jacob might be, be upset because he thinks that the dream isn't true. So hold on to that thought because it's going to be important down the line. So uh, Jacob is angry with him. Uh, there's other consequences of the dream that's now on top of his brother hating him. There's this new negative emotion in play, uh, jealousy. So this is interesting because the brothers weren't jealous before after the first dream. They just hated him. Now they're jealous of him. So, so what changed? So remember, we're looking at the story from Jacob's perspective. So what is Jacob thinking when he hears this dream? 
Uh, Jacob has a couple of different options how to react to this dream. Imagine your kid comes to you with a, with a very strange dream. Now, your kid says, oh, you know, I saw you and mom and all our brothers bowing down. What are you going to say to your kid? You could either uh, you could dismiss it. You could say, um, nice dream. Okay, um, what's for breakfast? Or you can take it seriously. So by getting upset about this dream, Jacob shows that he takes the dream seriously. And the brothers realize that something may be going on here. Maybe they will have to bow down to Joseph one day. If Jacob thinks it's real, they have to consider the possibility as well. Now they don't just hate him, but they have real reason to be jealous as well. So the brothers can't speak in peace to Joseph. Hatred is piled upon hatred. And now there's jealousy in the picture. So how does Jacob respond to all of this? Well, the text says Jacob kept watch over the matter, or he kept the sayings in mind, uh, depending on your translation. So the, commentar- the commentators almost the universally agree. This means Jacob waited with anticipation for the dream to come true. And that makes sense. Jacob favors Joseph. He'd want to see him elevated to the head of the family, but at the same time, Jacob is also angry about it. So these two reactions are, are, you know, they're in contention with each other. You know, the anticipation's real, but the anger is real too. So how do these two go together? So that's something I want to keep in the back of our minds, and we can come back and answer that question in a few minutes. But right now, I kind of want to just jump around a little bit and go back to the original question we asked about Jacob. So we're looking at this from Jacob's perspective, and we're asking, you know, is Jacob aware of the rising tensions in his family? You know, I think a plain reading of the text, you know, clearly shows, yes, Jacob is aware of how bad things have gotten. But that just makes what happens next all the stranger. So immediately after finding out that his brothers hate him and are jealous of him, Jacob sends Joseph alone and unguarded to check on his brothers. And not only that, but Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem of all places. Does anyone remember what happened to Shechem lately? Following this book? So if you've been reading the book up to this point, you'll know that uh, this is happening right after a massacre carried out by the sons of Leah against the people of Shechem. You know, the prince of Shechem had, uh, you know, had raped Dinah, uh, Dina, the daughter of Leah, and was holding her captive until he could marry her. And in response, the sons of Leah went in and massacred the entire town to avenge the honor of their mother's child. So we have this place with this history of violence, you know, a place where the sons of Leah have taken revenge for their honor, and now Jacob is sending this son of Rachel there alone. He's not sending him there for any great purpose either. Jacob says, you know, aren't your brothers in Shechem? I think I'll send you to check on them. It doesn't seem like any great reason, but actually we see the purpose next. Jacob says, go and check on the peace of your brothers and the peace of the sheep. Isn't this an interesting choice of words by Jacob? What was it that Joseph's brothers couldn't do with him? They couldn't speak in peace. And now Jacob is sending Joseph on this dangerous mission to do what? Go and see if he can make peace. Is Jacob testing Joseph here? Why would he do that? And why would he take such a dangerous risk? So let's keep all these questions in our mind for a little bit. We'll come back to them in a few minutes, but I want to I digress away from Jacob for a little bit. So we've been looking at this story from Jacob's perspective. Now I want to switch focus onto the brothers. You know, so what were they thinking? What was their rationale for what they did? Why did they feel like they had to go to such extreme measures? So I want to take a look at the text and see if there's any clues to the kind of 
unique perspective that they might have had. And I think that if we understand their perspective a little better, Jacob's actions will become much more clear. So let's ask a very simple question, for which there's probably going to be a layered answer. What is the cause of the brother's hatred towards Joseph? You know, there's, two, there's kind of two levels to this. You know, what the text says, what the text doesn't say. And I think that what the text doesn't say provides more of an insight than to what's really going on in their minds. So we've already charted uh, some of the overt reasons why the brothers don't like Joseph. Joseph brings their father a bad report about them. We won't hear about the brothers' reaction to this, but, you know, snitching probably didn't help. So, uh, you know, then we have the rest of the stuff that we already talked about. So those are the overt reasons. Are there covert reasons? Things that the text doesn't say outright, but that might give the brothers reason to hate Joseph? Well, we actually already touched on the answer back at the beginning. This jarring statement, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. The way the text frames this statement makes it clear that as far as Jacob's concerned, the spotlight is on Joseph. And this isn't just my theory either. So Rashi notices this as well. He asks the same question, and he cites three midrash to explain why Jacob saw Joseph as his main heir. So I'm reading from Rashi here. The first reason is that Joseph is Rachel's child. He's the son of the woman that Jacob actually wanted to marry, so he sees him as his real legitimate heir. The second reason is that Joseph has a strong family resemblance to Jacob. He looks like him. There's a real biological imperative between fathers and their children, Whether they want to or not, fathers tend to incline more towards children that look like them than the kids who maybe resemble their mother or some family member. And the third reason is that Joseph sees parallels between his life and Joseph's. Jacob knows what it's like to be hated by an older brother, and he sympathizes with Joseph more than anyone else. It's almost like a dad who has two sons. This dad was a big football player in high school, and when he has kids, uh, one of his sons is kind of like, like a bookworm, and the other's like really athletic and into sports. The father may love both his sons, but he's going to feel like he has more in common with the athletic son. The same situation is here between Jacob and Joseph. So when you put all this together, what is it that Jacob sees when he looks at Joseph? And he sees himself in Joseph. He sees himself in the next generation. Joseph is the son of the wife I love. He looks like me. He's the same as me on the inside. Joseph is the one who's destined to carry on my legacy in the next generation. So there's a word for this in Hebrew. It's called bechor. It means firstborn. And what it really means to be a firstborn is the overriding theme of the entire book of Genesis. Almost all of the conflict in the book revolves around this issue. You have Cain and Abel. Cain is the bechor, the firstborn, but Abel is favored over him. Then you have Abraham's son, Ishmael and Isaac, and who's the Bechor there? You know, it's Ishmael. But Isaac is the one who becomes Abraham's heir. A generation later, you have Esau and Jacob. Esau is the Bechor. But it's Jacob who ends up carrying on his father's legacy. So now it seems to be happening again between Jacob's children. Imagine you're Reuben, you know, the oldest of Jacob's sons. You know the history of your family, of how the younger supplants the older in every generation. How would you feel when you saw Jacob favoring Joseph? You think, Father is making Joseph his Bechor in my place. Aren't I good enough? It's not just Reuben who would have an issue with this. Jacob may have justified his treatment of Joseph and Bechor in his mind by saying, well, Joseph, in a way, is my firstborn. 
He's the first son of my real wife, Rachel. So if you're the sons of Leah, how is this going to make you feel? The only thing that's worse than insulting someone is insulting their mother. You know, so what, does, does Leah mean nothing? You know, what about our mother? What, 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 we chop liver? So the brothers can't take out their frustrations on their father. So who's all this hatred going to settle on? Joseph. So if the theory is true, then there are serious implications here about why the brothers feel about Joseph the way they do. He's not just the favorite. He's their replacement. So I'm levying some heavy charges against Jacob here. Is there any evidence that Jacob is really making Joseph his before? Or is this just like a wild theory? You know, there are a couple strong pieces of evidence within the text that would suggest that, yes, Jacob is treating Joseph as as before. So the first circumstance in which which Jacob left the service of his father-in-law, Laban. Again, very small text. All right. So we read that Jacob has been working for Laban for 20 years at this point, and he never expressed a desire to leave. What changed? Well, Joseph was born. So why is this significant? Um, rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, you know, he's a very famous Hasidic rabbi, um, posited a theory that Jacob was recalling the conversation between God and Abraham from Genesis 15, where God told Abraham that his children would be strangers in a land not their own. Now, of course, we know that God was speaking about Egypt, but Jacob didn't know that. He thought that the prophecy was about him. He said, hmm, I'm a stranger in a land far from my father's house. I've been enslaved and oppressed. Maybe not for 400 years, but it feels like 400 years. I've accumulated many possessions in my time. When I leave, I'm taking them with me. And in the fourth generation, well, let's see, Abraham was one. Um, Isaac was two. I'm three. So it will be four generations when my Bechor is born. But Jacob already had six sons. So why hadn't he left? It's because he didn't consider them, any of them to be his real Bechor. He didn't want to leave until Joseph, the son of the wife he loved, was born. The others didn't count. Joseph was his real Bechor. And there's even more evidence that this theory is true. This all stems from what seems like a really trivial comment that Rashi makes about Joseph's special coat. When Joseph is accosted by his brothers, they make this point of stripping him of his coat. But the text says something that's very easy to miss. The brothers strip Joseph of his regular shirt and his special coat. Now Rashi points out that Joseph is wearing two coats. Now you might be thinking, oh, who cares how many coats he's wearing? You know, but Rashi points out that the first shirt was just like a plain coat, like a plain little white coat. The same coat that Jacob had given to all of his sons. The second coat was a special one that Jacob only gave to Joseph. Jacob had given Joseph a double portion. There's only one son that receives a double portion in Torah, the Bechor. We can actually look at that law in Deuteronomy. We can actually look at that law in Deuteronomy and see that it all adds up. We read that if a man has two wives, one who is loved and one who is hated, and the hated wife gives birth first, the husband cannot make the son of the loved wife his bechor. And these verses borrow language from the story of Jacob. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's all over the place. So Rachel and Leah are described as wives who were loved and hated. When the brothers present Joseph's coat to their father, they say, we found this thing that belongs to you, your property, 
Do you recognize what it is? The first fruits of a man's strength you know, is used by Jacob to describe his oldest son, Reuben. You know, the Torah is trying to draw attention between these two stories to show that this law in Torah was created to address the situation between Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. The law had to be created because Jacob was treating Joseph as his bakor, and it wasn't right. Torah actually sides with the brothers. And now, when you read the story with this new context, if you use these words in the same context they're used in Deuteronomy, a fascinating subtext appears. The brothers can't really say what they want to to their father, but they say it in a subtle way. Dad, we found this. Do you recognize it? This is your property, your estate. You know, it's your legacy. Do you recognize who this belongs to? This belongs to your Bechor. Can you recognize that your firstborn is not the child of the wife that you love the most? Can you recognize your true Bechor? Does this coat belong to Joseph? Or should maybe it belong to Reuben? Torah gives us his insight into the brothers' perspective. And while it doesn't justify their actions, at least it shows us where they're coming from and why they felt they had to take such drastic measures. So we're kind of coming into the final stretch here, and I want to start bringing all of this together. I said that we were going to look at this story from three different points. We wanted to know what Jacob was thinking. We want you know, what the brothers were thinking. And we also wondered, what does God think about all this? Well, we'll see, we see what God's final ruling on the situation is in Deuteronomy, but God actually gets involved in the story much sooner. We asked a couple of questions earlier about Jacob. You know, why did he have such a conflicted response to Joseph's dream? He was angry on one hand, but he also hoped it would happen. And why would he take such a dangerous risk with his son just to test him? Well, according to Rashi, Jacob was so conflicted because he couldn't understand one of the details in Joseph's dream. The 11 stars, that must be the 11 brothers. And the sun must be Jacob. But the moon? That would seem to be his mother. But Joseph's mother is dead. How then can this dream possibly be true? In in Jacob's family, dreams mean something. God communicates with Jacob through his dreams, but if Joseph is dreaming nonsense like his dead mother bowing to him, maybe this isn't a dream from God at all. Maybe this is just the egotistical delusions of a spoiled kid. Jacob would love to see Joseph become the leader of the family. He wants that more than anything. But he has doubts that Joseph is ready to be the one to carry his legacy forward. A father shouldn't bow to his son. That's not the role of a bachor. A bachor should carry on his father's dreams into the next generation, not make the father subservient to his own dreams. So Jacob wants to believe that Joseph is worthy to be his bachor. But he has to be sure first. How can he be sure? Maybe if he devises a test. So Jacob knows that there's hostility between Joseph and his brothers. He knows the brothers are going to a violent place in Shechem. What if he gave Joseph a dangerous mission? What if he told Joseph to go to this dangerous place, to walk alone into the midst of his enemies and make peace with them? How would Joseph respond? Would he arrogantly refuse to do his father's bidding? Would he be too afraid Would he lack the confidence that he could make peace? If any of those things happened, Jacob would know that Joseph was not ready to be his before. But how does Joseph respond? He says, Hineni, 
Here I am. I'm ready to do what you ask of me. I know how dangerous this mission is, but I'm willing to go and try to make peace with my brothers anyway. Joseph is willing to go on the mission, and Jacob sends him off to see if he will follow up on his words. But here's the rub. Jacob has no intention of Joseph ever meeting his brothers. Let's look at this text closely here. Jacob says to Joseph, Aren't your brothers grazing the flocks in Shechem? This is weird. Jacob's not making a statement here. He's asking a question. You think he'd just say, oh, you know, your brothers are in Shechem. Instead, he's like, oh, aren't your brothers in Shechem? Like, he almost wants Jacob to think about it. I'm sorry, he wants Joseph to think about it and come up with the answer on his own. It sounds almost like Jacob is being sneaky here. But what would he have to be sneaky about? Well, just ask yourself the $64,000 question. Are Joseph's brothers in Shechem? Actually, they're not. When Joseph gets there, he can't find them anywhere because they've long since moved on from there. Jacob knew this all along. He knew that their brothers weren't going to be in Shechem. And then when Joseph got there, he'd wander around the field for a while. And then he'd return home safe, having passed the test. Only problem with Jacob's test is that he didn't account on God having his own plans. So when Joseph arrives in Shechem, he doesn't find his brothers, but he does run into a conveniently placed stranger. Now, Shechem should be a ghost town at this point, after the massacre. And when Joseph arrives, he only finds an empty field. But then he's approached by this man who appears out of nowhere and happens to have the one piece of information that Joseph needs. It all seems too convenient that the rabbis pick up on it. And they agreed that this stranger must be an angel sent to put Joseph on the right track. Not the track that Jacob wants, but the one that God wants for him. So what does God think of all this? God seems to be telling Jacob, you can't control the situation. You have your purposes, and they're noble, but I have my own plans for Joseph. I'm going to do something greater with Joseph than you have planned. Joseph will make peace with his brothers, but it's going to happen on my timeline, not yours. It's going to be really difficult for you, and you won't understand it at first. But in time, you will see how I took everything that you've done and used it to create a greater blessing than you could ever have imagined. So I mentioned way back at the beginning that there's this model of reading this story where Yeshua is Joseph, and the Jewish people are the brothers, and so on. And I asked, where do Messianic Jews fit in with this? Well, I think in many ways, we are like Jacob. We want Yeshua to take his place at the head of the family. And we want to reconcile him to the Jewish people. We work hard, and we have all these plans and schemes to make it happen. And when we see our efforts not bearing the kind of fruit that we want, it can be really difficult. But the story of Joseph gives us hope. Because Yeshua has his own plans. And when the time comes, he will reveal himself to his family and bring about that true reconciliation. So ultimately, we have to learn the same lessons that Joseph learned throughout all his trials. That we aren't the true authors of our own stories. Our story is in God's hands. And if we can surrender control to him, he will lead us to the perfect ending for us. And speaking of stories ending, Chazak, Chazak, Vanitzachach. Next week we'll start Shemot. 
book of Exodus and see what God has planned for the children of Israel next. So we'll see you then. Shabbat Shalom.